0: Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Before we start, I would like to say a huge thank you to my new Patreon supporters this week. That's Lucy Nguyen and Colleen Ollinger. Thank you both ever so much. I really hope you enjoy the 10 bonus episodes and the other exclusive content. I'm delighted that today's show has been researched by a friend of the podcast, Chris Wood. Thanks again, Chris. I am delighted you've brought this story to my attention. If there's a case you'd like to research for this podcast, please do let me know. Today we head back to 1998, which was the year we witnessed the worst terrorist atrocity in the history of Northern Ireland's troubles with the Omar bombing. As many of you will recall, a car bomb planted by the IRA exploded in the market town of Omar, killing 29 people. I remember clearly when I heard the news It was a brilliantly sunny August day and I was on the boat on the Norfolk Broads relaxing in the beautiful sunshine. Just what an awful contrast with the terrible scenes that unfolded in Omar that day. In May this year, legendary crooner Frank Sinatra died following a heart attack. Ever sung any of his stuff at karaoke? Frank had been in poor health during the last few years of his life and finally succumbed on May the 14th, aged 82. In music... Cher was the biggest selling artist in the charts this year with Believe. This year also saw the band, I use the term loosely, Aqua, sell a ridiculous number of singles for two pretty dreadful songs. Oh, are you a bit of a closet fan? Hmm, I thought so. An episode of Coronation Street in which the character Deirdre Rashid was jailed for mortgage and credit card fraud, was watched by 16.5 million viewers, giving the soap its highest Sunday viewing figures, since the weekend episode was added in 1996. Deirdre's wrongful conviction sparked a public outcry. Her case was championed by national newspapers and even Prime Minister Tony Blair offered to refer the conviction to homosexual Jack Straw. These stories that emerge every so often are really quite incredible, aren't they? In sport, England's football team embarked on their latest mission to bring home the World Cup. As I'm sure you're acutely aware... They left it there, they didn't bring it home. They made a second round exit at the hands of Argentina on penalties and this was the game, if you recall, that made David Beckham a figure of hate for many football fans after his sending off. Funny how things change, isn't it? A second round exit at next year's World Cup in Russia sounds like a pretty good result for England nowadays, even with the super easy group that we've been drawn in. The eventual winners, of course, were the home nation France, who beat Brazil 3-0 in the final. And that August, Manchester United became the world's second football team to have its own TV channel. You can probably guess who the first was. Yes, it was Middlesbrough, obviously. Hold on, Chris, I can't read this stuff. I know you're a Middlesbrough fan, but I'm going to have to have a word with you about these references to second-tier semi-pro teams such as Man United and Middlesbrough. As listeners to this podcast know, there is only one team worthy of our support in Europe, the mighty Leeds United. I think we best move on to the story. Hastings is a popular seaside town in the county of East Sussex, with a population of around 100,000 people, and it's located 50 miles south of London. Perhaps best known from the Battle of Hastings in 1066, where William the Duke of Normandy famously defeated the English army, giving him the title thereafter, of William the Conqueror and becoming synonymous with the town. Today, Hastings prides itself on its fishing industry. Its fishing fleet is the largest beach launch fleet in Europe and it wins consistent praise for its use of sustainable methods. Personally, I've been to Hastings twice. Once getting a parking ticket in a car park by the beach and the other time getting three points for breaking the speed limit by doing 32 in a 30 mile an hour at 3am. Joy Unconfined Claire Letchford, aged 40, lived alone in a basement flat in Cornwall's Gardens, Hastings. She lived a solitary and quiet lifestyle, where her main company was provided by her father, Frank Letchford. He would more often than not be her only visitor, and she looked forward to their outings. Frank would see his daughter and take her shopping each Sunday, and they often stopped to have lunch out, and just generally he gave his daughter a social event that she could look forward to throughout the week. Claire had mentioned to her dad that she was beginning to feel depressed and she was lonely. Frank thought that his daughter Claire was not suited for the cut and thrust of ordinary life. She was too much of an innocent is how he saw her. Isn't that just a heartbreaking thought? As a dad, acknowledging that your daughter's just not suited to modern life and becoming increasingly lonely and depressed and even the flat she lived in contributed to cutting her off the local community. It was a basement position, which was almost as if every time Claire retreated into her home, she was symbolically heading beneath ground, and almost invisible to her community. Sunday the 18th of January had been much like any other Sunday in Claire's life. Her dad had collected her and taken her on their usual shopping trip. They would lunch in Littlewood's restaurant, remember them? and arrived back at Claire's flat at around 5pm. Having said their goodbyes and confirmed the following week's trip out, Frank set off for home, unaware that he'd just seen his daughter for the very last time. There was nothing untoward or suspicious as he departed, but only a couple of hours later, at 7.15pm, neighbours reported seeing smoke bellowing from her basement flat. Fire crews were dispatched to the scene, where they quickly discovered the lifeless body of Claire. She was found lying on her back, badly burned, and with a pair of shoelaces tied around her neck and a cushion cover placed over her head. It was later found that the compressions she'd received to her neck were non-fatal and that Claire died of smoke inhalation. Detectives were baffled. They were bewildered why anyone would want to murder Claire. What possible motive could there have been for the killing? We've often spoken on this podcast about the sheer devastation that a community endures following a brutal event like this. Initial feelings of bewilderment and shock give way to a dread and a fear when the realisation sinks in that whoever committed such an act is still out there and free to murder again. Nobody in Hastings, however, could have known that the killer would strike again only a little over a week later. On Sunday, the 25th of January, with the town still reeling from Clare's murder, a lady called Beryl O'Connor, who was known to locals as Dorney, had a passing chat with detectives who were making inquiries into Clare's death. As Dorney expressed her sadness and grief that a young lady had been so cruelly taken from the world, she returned home to the top floor flat she lived at in Clifton Court, which was barely 100 yards from where Clare Letchford had lived. The following morning, Monday the 26th of January, Dorney was concerned over a damp hatch would appeared on the carpet near the entrance to her flat. It was as though someone had poured liquid through the letterbox. Clearly in light of what had happened just over a week earlier, this turn of events worried Dorney more than it usually would have done. A friend who had done some shopping for her that morning found that Dorney was examining the wet patch and due to her high levels of distress... Her friend checked on her several times that morning. She last spoke to her just before lunchtime. At 2 30 pm that afternoon, detectives were continuing with their inquiries into the murder of Claire, trying to look for any evidence and information that may help them in the search for the killer by conducting door to door inquiries nearby. They were actually at Clifton Court talking to a friend of Dorney's when the interview was briefly halted by a phone call which was made by Dorney, who was incredibly agitated. She sounded harassed and worried, and gave the impression that she wanted to get out of the flat. The friend told her to relax, and said that she would check on her later on. But in the confusion of the day, the friend forgot to go and check on Dorney as planned. It was later that afternoon that a neighbour heard the sound of a smoke alarm, and upon investigating, they noticed smoke coming from Dorney's flat. With an undoubted sense of déjà vu, fire crews arrived at the scene and were sadly met with a similar scene to that which agreed to them only eight days earlier. The pensioner was discovered behind a closed door in her spare room. She was covered in newspapers and a host of lit newspapers were also stacked around her body. In much the same way as had occurred with Claire, Dorney also had bruising around her neck and her face which indicated some form of manual strangulation but she too had died of smoking inhalation. Who could possibly have wanted to murder a harmless pensioner like Dorney? As the news of the town's second murder in the space of eight days filtered through the local community, people now became really scared. Although the two victims were on the face of it very different personalities, the ways in which they had met their violent deaths were frighteningly similar. Happening within a hundred yards of each other, Along with the fact that some type of strangulation had been attempted before the crude efforts to burn the bodies were clearly causes for concern to the police and the local population. Both ladies were also, in their own ways, described as being vulnerable victims, both living alone and being fragile and somewhat timid individuals. In both cases, it did not appear that the intruder had forced entry or stolen anything, nor did it appear that there was any obvious sign of sexual assault. So just why had they been murdered? The police were under significant pressure to get a quick result. Early attempts to find the killers didn't go well. Police were unable to retrieve any forensic evidence from either crime scene. Exhaustive inquiries in the weeks and months after the killings failed to yield a conviction, so the police took the common step of producing a reconstruction of events on the BBC Crime Watch programme. A photo fit from a man seen acting suspiciously near the stairwell in Clifton Court on the day of Dorney's death was also released. Based on this extra information, police did question a man named Graham Fisher as a suspect, but during one interview he was deemed unfit for interrogation, and at another he declined to answer questions. With no forensic evidence, confession, or really any other evidence at all, the local police didn't have enough for him to be charged and so he was released by officers. Police had hit the proverbial brick wall and with nothing else to go on, they were forced to close the case until new evidence came to light. In this period, Claire's father sadly passed away without ever witnessing justice for his daughter. It's been suggested by those close to him that he felt he had nothing left to live for and he effectively gave up on life after learning that the case was to be closed. How desperately sad that is to hear. However, more than a decade after the apparently senseless murders of the two women, detectives announced that they were to reopen the case. Sussex Police's major crime branch revealed in April 2009 that there had been significant and exciting developments in the two murder inquiries. The new evidence linked to the rape and attempted murder of a 19-year-old Czech student only the day before Dorney was killed. Speculation was rife in the town. Was the teenager another victim of the double killer? When the attack on the student occurred, the crime was considered a separate incident and not linked. What had happened was the day before Dorney was killed, the British Transport Police were called to investigate a brutal assault which occurred on the 1311 train from Hastings to London's Charing Cross Station. The Czech teenager, who was an English language student, had only been in the country for three months. She was discovered by a train guard in the toilets, covered in blood with severe head injuries, and appeared to have been left for dead. She told detectives that a man had tricked his way into the cubicle and tried to rape her before launching a sustained, frenzied and bloody attack. Detective Chief Inspector Trevor Bowles was responsible for investigating the murders and despite the apparent differences in the crimes, he believed that there were strong links between the three attacks. He announced that The investigation may be over 11 years old but still resonates in the thoughts and concerns of the people in Hastings. The re-investigation is complex and wide-ranging. We will shortly be speaking with the CPS about the significant and exciting progress we have made. Despite the passage of time, the British Transport Police were equally as keen to resolve the attack suffered on the train by the young Czech victim. The two organisations worked closely together in order to get the cases passed to the CPS as soon as possible. Whilst this was certainly exciting information in the hunt for the murderer, police still needed more. And in 2008, albeit from an unlikely source, they appeared to get just that. The man that police had interviewed right back in 1998, Graham Fisher, had been part way through serving a five year jail sentence for indecently assaulting two Spanish students in Eastbourne, another seaside town in East Sussex, in May 1998, four months after the attacks in Hastings. While serving his jail term, Fisher was transferred to Broadmoor High Security Hospital under the Mental Health Act, following concerns that he was a grave and immediate danger if released into the community to both himself and others. It was here that Fisher apparently developed a sense of regret about his previous actions and confessed to officials within the hospital that it was he who had killed both Claire and Dorney back in 1998. Fisher told a doctor he felt it necessary to confess to his crimes because it was so hard to live with it in my head. But Fisher's confessions did not end here. He also admitted to having cut a piece of flesh from Claire Letchford's arm and eating it after he killed her. Such sadistic depravity seems completely macabre and unfathomable, yet more awful details would emerge as the case appeared for a hearing at Lewis Crown Court in September 2010. Prosecutor Richard Barton read out Fisher's confession to the court before laying out exactly why the prosecution believed that Fisher had carried out his attacks. It was claimed that both women were lonely former neighbours of Fisher from some years previously and that he targeted lonely women in a perverse bid to satisfy what his psychiatrist described as a sexually sadistic aspect of his personality and that much of his rage had stemmed from an unhappy childhood. Further aspects of this sadistic side were further considered when Fisher admitted that he gained a thrill from seeing his victim frightened. He said... She looked really scared, but this just turned me on even more. The court also heard how Fisher could be conniving. For the attempted murder and rape of the Czech student on the train, it was claimed that he tricked his way into the toilet after seeing her walk in before he launched his violent attack. The horrific nature of her ordeal was laid bare. As a result of being strangled, she suffered a stroke and was left in a coma for three days. Her injuries have left a profound impact on her, even to this day. In a victim impact statement read out in court, she said that although she's now married back in the Czech Republic, she had to learn how to speak and how to walk again, and to think that she was the lucky one. So just how had Graham Fisher come to be in Hastings and be able to wreak the havoc that he did in January of 1998? Prosecutor Barton helped shed some light on this as he explained that during Fisher's confession of the double murder he'd also admitted that he'd raped another woman in her home in Bromley southeast london where fisher was originally from in 1991 after forcing his way into her home he raped her in her hallway and in her living room a day or two afterwards fisher returned to the property for a second time and found the woman who was vulnerable sleeping in the hallway. He stripped himself, grabbed her across the mouth to stop her screaming and attacked her again, saying later that it was a strong surge of anger that made him do it. The woman had apparently confided in relatives about what had happened to her, but sadly nobody reported the incident to police. After these rapes, Fisher moved to the Isle of Wight, where he received a two-year prison sentence for assault and false imprisonment. This happened after he tied up his ex-partner and tried to strangle her, as well as burning her son on his genitals. After being freed from prison in 1995, he moved to Kent and he lived an itinerant lifestyle around Maidstone and Gravesend before moving to Hastings where the killings took place. At the inquest into the two deaths, the East Sussex coroner recorded verdicts of unlawful killing. He went on to say that Claire and Dorney were vulnerable victims of despicable and needless crimes. Graham Fisher admitted the manslaughter of Claire Letchford and Beryl O'Connor in Hastings on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Judge Justice Keith said it had been to Fisher's credit that whilst at Broadmoor he had tried to get these terrible crimes off his chest and that he was concerned that he was too much of a danger at that time to be transferred from Broadmoor to a less secure hospital. Justice Keith announced that Fisher's detention in hospital would be subject to progress of his treatment, but added it could be decades before Fisher was eventually released back into the community, if at all. Interestingly, the judge added that Fisher, in comparison to the average man, was far less equipped to exercise willpower to control his abnormal sexual aggressive urges. In Mitigation Fisher's defence counsel, Jeremy Dying QC, claimed that experts have found that his difficult childhood could account for his actions. He asserted that all of the experts observed that his experiences as a child and into his teenage years blurred his sexual boundaries and rendered him incapable of controlling himself where his sexual conduct was concerned, and made him very disturbed in terms of his approach to such situations. What do you make of this for a defence? It's an off-sited claim, isn't it, that an individual's actions are prompted via things that have happened during their childhood? Of course, it's equally common to say that there are a lot of people who have horrendous upbringings and do not go on to commit such horrendous crimes. Detective Chief Inspector Trevor Bowles reiterated after the hearing that the investigation had been a lengthy and complex one. The offences to which Fisher pleaded guilty demonstrate the extreme danger he poses to the public. His offences have wrecked the lives of many individuals and families. Bowles also expressed his gratitude to the complex case units of the CPS, along with their leading counsel, Richard Barton, and his investigative team, who'd all shown the passion and desire to seek justice for Fisher's victims. As we heard earlier on, Frank Letchford sadly never got to see justice serve for the death of his daughter, going to his grave without ever learning who had cut his daughter's life tragically short. Despite Dorney's more advanced years, she too also had much to live for and still remains a much-missed lady in the community. In that month of January 1998, Graham Fisher's unspeakable acts tore a community apart and created an air of terror and dread in Hastings. Over this period in January, No woman who had the misfortune of encountering Fisher was safe from him. Whilst the time since the murders may have elapsed, the pain shared by the local community of having two of its members ripped so cruelly from it remains as vivid and heartbreaking as ever. So what do you make of what we've heard today? Two murders, one brutal rape and one other attack where a young student was lucky to escape with her life. And how many other potential victims could there be out there? I suspect there were a few. And what does this case say about the competence of the police in these investigations? Let's face it, if Fisher hadn't confessed to the crimes, they'd never have been solved. As although police interviewed him as a suspect, they were unable to produce the evidence needed to bring charges. And what of Graham Fisher? Well, what is there to say Really? Although I'm not normally in favour of the death penalty, for Fisher, this must be as good an argument for it as any. No Home Secretary could ever release him from custody, as he'd always pose a risk. So why should UK taxpayers continue to pay for his care in prison? What do you think? In 2012, Fisher was back in the papers. Now aged 39, he complained to staff that he was too fat and unfit after ballooning to over 23 stone. He was then given permission to have an £8,000 gastric band operation at a private hospital to lose the weight. I don't know, I hate to sound like the worst sort of Daily Mail reader, but do you wonder how on earth he managed to get that size? I mean, he couldn't exactly order a sneaky chicken vindaloo every night, could he? Well, could he? I don't think so. And really, as UK taxpayers... Is this a good use of our money? I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast and again a huge thank you to Chris Wood for researching the case. Please come and join me and other fans of UK True Crime at our Facebook group where we discuss all aspects of UK True Crime. To support the show and listen to the 10 full-length bonus episodes and all the other exclusive content for less than £3 per month, please head to patreon.com slash UK true crime. That's patreon.com slash UK true crime. That's all from me for this week. So until we speak again next time, cheerio.